And greeting Ajahn Isabel. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Ajahn. We're far apart again. It's okay. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Mm. I don't think we'll fool any anybody because our, our <laughs> screens aren't the same color. Yeah, so welcome everyone. Um, this evening we're having our once monthly conversation and these conversations usually take the form of finding X in Y. So, uh, and to be clear, we do actually talk more than once a month. <laughs> so this is true. Um, yeah. This is, yeah, only, uh, yeah, formally on video with one another. So we talk a lot. We talk. Um, but anyway, today's uh, theme is finding the right in writing. So that's a play on words, and that right, it's not right, capital R is in the sense of, you know, political alt-right or right in the sense of wrong, some kind of moral, but in the sense of the Noble Eightfold Path, all these different right, right factors of right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So just wanting to um, pose this question, is there a way to bring a rightness, this, this harmony, this samma into writing? Um, writing is something which Ajahn Nisabo and I both do and find a useful to be a useful um, support in certain ways for practice. So Ajahn, thanks for agreeing to this. And I look forward to hearing, um, yeah, more of your thoughts on writing. We actually don't talk about our individual writing projects with one another very often. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Um, so to start with, just curious, very broad question. What role does writing play in your life? Whoa. <laughs> yes. You know, we both do, uh, you know, Ajahn Kovilo has done a lot of, he's currently uh, doing a project on the paths to joy and has edited Stillness Flowing among other biographies. And we, uh, but we don't actually get to talk about it very, very often. I'm working on Longpore Pasano's biography and uh, try to write poetry pretty, pretty regularly. I've thought about this question a lot because I think that one issue I've seen in some Theravada circles and practitioners is an imbalance in the way the energy and heart is steered. And uh, in Freudian psychology, you have two instincts. You have Eros, the life instinct, which is all about creativity and making things whole. And I think it is roughly analogous to chanda, the Pali word for zeal and or enthusiasm. And I think it can be very wholesome. Then you have tanha, or uh, sorry, you have thanatos in Freudian psychology, which means death. And it's the death instinct, which uh, Freud talked about as something, this sort of aggressive instinct that's socialized as the internal superego. So it's the part of us that's saying, you're not good enough, you need to do this better. and Unluckily, I feel like what I've seen in a lot of circles is so few roots for Eros. Like we intuit the power of this path and want to give ourselves to it, but we don't know how to channel that sincerity into any roots of Eros. Uh, so a lot of it gets channeled into Thanatos. And what that looks like is more renunciation, more pulling back, and a certain violence and brittleness. Whereas I think 
when you enter a Buddhist country and landscape like Thailand, you see all these roots of, of Eros um, connection with other, uh, you know, and I think Thanatos is roughly equivalent to Vibhava Tanha, like craving not to become. And I think actually there's some theories that Freud got the concept from, from Buddhism initially. And so in, in Thailand, you see these monasteries filled with community and a sense of giving and har harmonizing. You see roots of art, uh, carving Buddha statues, murals. Uh, and in the West, we just don't have that. What we have is the instruction to sit alone at home. And somehow that's supposed to be, in many cases, enough to encompass your whole path. So all to say that where I see writing play in and an artist art for creative types is often this root of creation of eros um, and a certain flourishing of the spirit or or a, a playfulness, which I think is a really helpful piece of the path. And for me, a very clear manifestation of, of metta. Um, just to say one more thing about it is I think also there's a union sub, like we come as Westerners to the teachings and there's uh, intellectual crystalline nature to just the Buddha's lucidity in terms of his lists and uh, articulation. But I think there's a union substrate to the mind, which uh, speaks more in embodiment, in ritual and in story. And this is kind of the dream landscape that I think really resonates with, it's, it's a deeper concept or a deeper part of ourselves at times. And sometimes I see this imbalance in the West where one function of mindfulness is to order things by naming them. Um, I think uh, there's a teacher who names that among the four powers of mindfulness. So I feel like we have all these tools for naming our surface level uh, experience but what art and writing do on the creative level is I think they name and um, allow a framework and a settling of the deeper union forces in the heart. And, um, and that without that, there's this imbalance where it's like you have this rollicking ocean of uh, intense forces deep in the heart. And on the surface, you're trying to, you have this crust of concept, but below there's all this kind of movement. And just to say that I, I really have sensed, we talked about this word right, and in the Noble Eightfold Path, that Pali word is sama or harmonious. And when I've seen uh, people use and bring into alignment um, this union substrate of their of their path and either really fall in love with ritual or giving, or for me, it, it has been through writing, um, this ability to kind of speak to this much deeper part of me and bring it into alignment with the, the sort of conceptual top layer. And there's a harmony there that I see is really sustaining and meaningful. And I think you can sometimes see the imbalance when that's not there is people seem, um, well, they, they seem unbalanced and like there's the deeper, these deeper forces aren't always being marshaled. So yeah, I see writing as a tool for um, flourishing and chanda in a dharmic path um, and sort of a certain rejoicing playfulness or metta. And I see it as a tool of settling, metabolizing and integrating 
the deeper energies of the chitta, which pure concept cannot always do. Um, it's a long answer, but I've thought about this and I do think it's important. So what yeah. are your thoughts, Ajahn? And then I can ask you questions too. <laughs> no, that's a, is a great answer. And I'm immediately struck by, I mean, some of the wording, the Freudian language around Eros, and I mean, that goes way back, way before uh, Freud. But I mean, Eros, when you bring it into a Buddhist context, or especially a monastic context, you know, it's immediately related to has the same root as erotic, you know, it brings up yeah. this, this sexual, um, it has these sexual connotations, which, I mean, there is a creative, you know, in terms of creating something. Um, but I think if you, when we speak in terms of eros or the erotic element of, mm. of being, I think that can maybe confuse some people who are used to more of a, a Buddhist framework or a renunciate framework. Um, but I think you're pointing to something which is really important. Ajahn Jayasaro actually um, brings up this word creative or creativity. How do you translate creativity into uh, Pali? And he says, bhavana. So bhavana is mm. usually translated as meditation, but it literally means to make into being or to, um, to call into being. So it's creativity, it's creation. And what you're pointing to, I think, is, um, yeah, being able to see beauty. It talks to, you know, it speaks to the capacity for uh, noticing animita, even. So people know this word if they know it at all, the Pali word nimita as like an object or sign, S-I-G-N, in uh, meditation. And in meditation, I mean, you really can play around with these signs, these nimitas, and it, it can become a, a creative work in and of itself. Um, but just, yeah, creating, there are signs, nimitta, to anything that we create in our, in our lives, including um, if it's, you know, with pen and paper on a literary level, or if it's um, with stone and chisel, uh, you know, on a sculptural basis, or with, um, you know, paintbrush and canvas, um, you know, and I totally agree with you and see, um, it's easy to see when um, things get pathological, when that Eros is um, just either intentionally, this creative impulse is intentionally kind of wet blanketed or um, is just not well sublimated or transmuted into more positive energy. Um, and yeah, I have I, always appreciated um, senior monastics who create an environment around a monastery, whether it's for the uh, resident monastics or for visiting lay people, that there is a place for this generative, this creativity, this generativity, um, yeah, that allows for monastics like our good friend Ajahn Jodi Palo, who creates beautiful Buddhist iconography, uh, or like Ajahn Anek, uh, basically the you know second most senior monk in the Ajahn Chah lineage, who is basically an amazing sculptor. You visit his monastery, and he's has had a hand, um, if not the main hand, in these uh, amazing sandstone sculptures of the Buddha and. Uh, great disciples. And it's just 
amazing when you see something like that. And it's, uh, it's a, I mean, in a sense, it's a testament to their mind. Um, you know, this has kind of gone a little bit off of the theme of, of writing, but I think um, this you know, generative, creative uh, impulse is, uh, yeah, it, it manifests. It's the same impulse. It's just a different avenue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, framing it in that way. Yeah, no, definitely. And one thing um, I'm, you know, bringing up those figures is is very relevant. And yeah, there's just a joy and levity and um, into the in those teachers that's uh, very much in keeping with the path. And so you talked about what the word for creativity would be, and I understand translating it as bhavana. But another word I've heard used is the patibana, and where does that fit in? Because that, because this is something I wanted to point to with you, because I've seen you use writing in two ways. And one is to um, articulate and methodically move through something you're thinking about. And, uh, you know, I also know you do this um, when you translate suttas into English from Pali to some extent. But then I've seen something which is a bit different. And there's like this flashing creative part. And I think that aligns a bit more with what I've heard the Patibana being this like radiance, which is really spoken about a great deal in the commentaries, although it might be different, but um, you know, uh, some of the best Ajin Kobilo puns out there certainly have that quality. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think you told me about the meditation where you thought of your feed two birds with one scone idea and you just had to write it down immediately. And I think that's, that's true. It's a curse. (laughs) may it continue. Um, so how do you see those two threads of, you know, the Patibana aspect, if that, you know, is there an overlay with that term? And does that diverge from the other ways you use writing? Mm. Yeah, Patibana, I think it's usually translated as uh, eloquence. Um, but there's certainly a creativity that's involved. There are these four... Um, Patisambida. Patisambida. Yeah, you have Niruti, language. Yep. What's the other one? Patibana, eloquence. Mm. Um, Dhamma. Dhamma. And then Atta. Atta. Yeah, this, uh, being able to trace things back to the meaning, which is Atta. Dhamma, which is Dhamma. And then Niruti, playing with language. And then some other one I, I don't remember. Yes. Yeah, Patisambida. Jnana, I think it's usually translated as maybe analytical knowledges, mm-hmm. but I really appreciate, I think you turned me on um, that Reverend Hung Shur, uh, in the Master Hua Chinese tradition, he talks about really praising Master Hua as a master of these patibanas. And I think you're right that like a, a mastery of language and a creativity and eloquence, really looking at the meaning, looking at the causality of things. Um, yeah, I mean, it was originally used by the Buddha in a pre-literate time. So the Pali Canon was not written down for the first um, yeah, several hundred years. Um, so when he was speaking about Patibana, it was um, on the level of speech, being able to give uh, perfectly relevant and beautiful and connected Dhamma talks, explanations of the, the teachings. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly translates in the level of writing. Um, yeah, in terms of, yeah, just a little bit more baby about that, um, where writing comes up in the Pali Canon, mm. you do have a word, 
likati, which means to write literally to carve, um, like the word salika, hmm. which is the name for effacement. It's this carving away. Um, but in its, its reading, it's like cuneiform, which is like, uh, you know, this Egyptian writing where you would... It takes a lot longer, a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but basically like early writing um, at the time of the Buddha in India, um, it was a rather, it was a specialty that was used by um, uh, people who were doing calculations, who were doing arithmetic um, merchants and whatnot, and really wasn't seen as a something which most people knew how to do to convert um, language, spoken language, into writing. Hmm. Um, so you do find it in the Vinaya. You know, monks shouldn't break rules by by writing. You shouldn't lie even by writing. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly don't <laughs> feel like I have patisambhita um, or eloquence in, in terms of my writing, but it is something I do um, like and gain benefit from specificity of speech and knowing the, the meanings of words and being able to trace uh, words back to their, to their roots and being able to translate that across different languages is, is quite fascinating. Uh, so yeah, that's my, um, but where else in the poly, I know writing doesn't come up much, but what about this other, these other qualities of creativity? Does, are there, I mean, there's Vangisa, right? But Vangisa. where else Vangisa? Yeah. Can you speak about, is there anything else in the suttas that kind of comes up around this? And if, if not that, I'm also curious about your own experience translating into English uh, from Pali as well. Yeah. No, I mean, Vangisa, so the Buddha gave these superlatives, you know, Sariputta is the foremost in uh, Panya or wisdom. Hamogan is the foremost in psychic powers. Anuruddha is foremost in the divine eye. And Vangisa is the foremost, might be the foremost in Patibana or mm -hmm. eloquence, um, I believe. Yeah, elo eloquence. And there are other monastics who, there was a, um, a dwarf named Badia. Badia, Badia the dwarf. Yeah, who is also foremost in having a, a beautiful voice. Um, mm. So yeah, the Buddha did praise this quality. It's not something which is just an accident, or um, but he praised and lifted up these these monastics. Who uh, Vangisa was a poet before he before he ordained, and he was able to just naturally take that skill into his uh, both his teaching and his monastic life. Um, I'm sure before he attained arhatship, uh, he was using that to better explain the Dhamma to himself. Um, but yeah, for, for myself, uh, I most recently was yet doing editing work. That's something which kind of comma or habit that I've had yeah, working with Ajahn Jayasaro and have chose me along with a couple of others. We had a fourfold parisa, a layman, a laywoman, uh, a bhikshuni, Munisara, and myself who were working on that editing. And then more recently with Ajahn Dick, Sila Ratana of um, Forest Dhamma Monastery invited me to be an editor for his biography of Ajahn Jia. And I love these because um, it definitely takes quite a bit of time. You have to get in a particular type of nitpicking mode, which I can do. It's, it's you know, like kind of the, it's, it's allowing your dosa charit, your capacity for being critical and seeing faults it's like a, a window. I don't, in general, I like being an agreeable person. 
but editing really allows you a vehicle for uh, being critical and, and finding faults um, in a way which people actually like. Like, Ajahnis, well, you sent me um, something, a newsletter that you had written earlier today, and I, you know, turned on my critical glasses and basically finding fault you know, all over the place and you know, ask for forgiveness at the end. And you say, oh, no, that's exactly what I wanted. So it's a acceptable means for dosa or um, being aversive. But um, yeah, that's, and of course, right now I'm writing um, this paper that you uh, spoke to, yeah, figuring out the place for pamoja or or joy and yoniselmanasikara, which is the, the root, the this mind that turns to the yoni, to the source of things and playing around with uh, what that means and finding textual sources. So um, yeah, I think it'll eventually be a, a useful document that I can you know, put out into the world. And it's something which at present, even before I introduce it to anybody else is um, cool for me to be thinking about in a nice use of my time. And we are, uh, we're giving a retreat on it together in uh, early June. So that'll be a nice introduction. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, I, if I can jump in there, Ajahn, sure. um, you speaking about cuneiform and this lickety, this carving, uh, reminds me of something I, I heard recently, which was that the switch from pictorographic language or uh, whatever the adjective is to, or letters to phonetic lettering is a very powerful moment in societies because it is more easily comprehensible to the mind, uh, basically. There's a lot of studies on how when you read fonts that are more easily uh, kind of taken in or when you read phonetic lettering, the memory operates better and you retain what you've read uh, better because it's more comprehensible. Just just to clarify, so ideograms, um, mm -hmm. characters like Chinese characters, um, you're saying elicit or pull on a different part of the the brain. Yeah, um, there's letter alphabets. Exactly, um, and that the phonetic uh, alphabets because they're composed of so many fewer parts. There's something about them that is quite comprehensible. Mm. Um, and I've always found that very interesting to think of in terms of the Four Noble Truths, because when I think about the most basic possible framework of uh, basically the most basic lens you could apply to life that would be all encompassing, and it certainly was one of the Buddhist categorical teachings, applying the Four Noble Truths, it, it is the Four Noble Truths. And it's almost like spelling every every word or every letter or every experience in our life is a word that if you really break it down can be spelled with four letters and that's the four noble truths and just how comprehensible that makes it. And cause I find when you come in contact with the Buddha's lists, you, you know, you've read about the four noble truths how many times and, you know, at first you kind of skim over these lists. I think we've all these experiences and think, okay, five faculties, four powers, um, four foundations of mindfulness. Okay. But then you keep coming back to them and you realize that like grounding this variegated experience in these really simple frameworks just make life comprehensible in a way that's mm -hmm. pretty profound over the years and this switch to right view. So 
you know, it's an interesting and maybe flawed analogy in many ways, but I do find it interesting to think about what can seem like this, you know, vast Shakespearean tragedy of our lives. Uh, what the Four Noble Truths allow you to do is just look at four letters again and again and again and again mm. and approach just those. And I just find that so meaningful to see. Um, yeah, yeah I don't know if that makes sense. That's fascinating, a fascinating metaphor. Just the Four Noble Truths is four letters. But you also, there's that metaphor of, you know, even if you had four wise men who had were complete in this Patibana eloquence, mm. they could speak, you know, from the day they were born, if they could speak, up until... You know, age 100 and speak all day, uh, you know, except for their time of sleeping and time for going to the restroom, just teach on each of the Four Noble Truths for those 100 years. And those four people speaking all day, every day for 100 years wouldn't reach the end of the, the scope of the, the Four Noble Truths. So it also points to, yeah, there's, there's more to be written. I mean, people can say, um, and rightly do, that you've just got, we've got all we need. We've got these these four letters, the four noble truths, uh, what else do you need to say? Mm. And um, there's a lot of truth to that, but I think different people have different needs, both in terms of expressing and in terms of comprehending. Mm. And certainly um, having things translated from Pali or from Chinese or from Thai into a language that we're familiar with, English or whatever it is, um, yeah, I've benefited immensely. Um, you know, I've been learning Pali for over 15 years and, and still uh, don't really, you know, can't fluently necessarily read everything I, I come up to. So having people who translate and, you know, translators from 100 years ago, hmm. they got a lot wrong. You know, they were translating from a, a Christian uh, background and um, some of their translations are just stilted. So new generations of translators and new generations of expositors mm -hmm. of the Dhamma explaining in modern day uh, language um, and writing in modern day mm -hmm. language. I mean, you've got tons of, you know, quite a few books on the Four Noble Truths, uh, Philip Moffat, um, you know, Ajahn Chah, Lumpur Sumedho, uh, basically every modern day Buddhist speaker and writer has written about the Four Noble Truths, but it's just, it won't be exhausted. And um, yeah, no, and I think the the movement you're pointing to of tracing, you know, I was speaking about how you trace, use writing to trace things down to common principles. And I've seen you do that in systematic writing, but what you're pointing to with the four disciples that it can also be used to bring things up and mm -hmm. uh, elaborate. And then the really interesting case of, you know, lateral from one language to another and the hyperlinked nature of the the teachings, especially once you learn Pali, like like you know, with no, seeing one root here, 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 and even in other languages of the Indo-Aryan, you know, origin, and um, you know, also just to point out, uh, there's these Pali sessions with Bhikkhu Bodhi that uh, Ajahn Kovilo attends every Monday, and I get to listen to the recordings afterwards and uh, hear him and others kind of pipe in every now and again to because there's these readers who read after Bhikkhu Bodhi and just hearing in the suttas the fact that you reference the poetry of the Pali Canon and just that there's we read the Dhammapada and we don't realize that this verse is it's perfect metric I mean it's it's a very clear form and it's beautiful to hear read so I don't know if you have anything to say about the um 
you know, I've heard the Terigata and the Terigata were the first first kind of nature poetry in the world. I don't know if that's true, but you did have these court 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 men and women going into the forest. So what are your thoughts, Ajahn? Yeah, and I've heard that the I mean the Terigata, this collection of discourses from these enlightened women, was uh, perhaps the first anthology of women's writing, like in the history of the world. And that's seems believable as well. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, people have been giving Dhamma talks and being eloquent, you know, and um, honing that skill. And, and it's interesting that just as one's understanding of Dhamma um, increases through meditation and just daily life, that uh, there doesn't have to necessarily be a concurrent um, and upkeeping uh, capacity to express it, but there can be, and you can nurture that skill and it's a gift to the world and it could be a gift to oneself. Ajahn, we've got a lot of questions and the time really went by. I wanna ask one more question of you before we go to uh, others, but in the meantime, people can put questions in the chat. Um, but Ajahn, you're like writing, as I understand it, um, is a huge part of your practice. Like, I think you've told me that if you don't get in your, your writing, mm -hmm. um, in the morning, it really has a, um, a domino or a effect, you know, uh, it kind of, uh, it's like a lonely domino. He just hangs out. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good scene. Yeah. So could you, could you say a bit more about that? Like what, um, yeah, how, 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 how long do you write in the morning? What do you write in the morning? And, and how does that set the pace for your day? Yeah, great question. I think this is really important for the creatives. Um, and I think a lot of us have that in us. Um, but I know Emerson talked about three transcendentals, which you can trace through history, and there's truth, goodness, and beauty. And I feel like in Theravada Buddhism, we have so much truth and goodness, but we don't have a lot of roots for people to express beauty. And um, for me, there's something about the expression of rejoicing in, how do I put it? Um, it? It's such a pure act of metta for me, especially writing a poem to someone as a gift. And what I think art can do is it can be used in service of the first and the third noble truth is either good art can help someone metabolize their suffering. You know, you can, re, you can recast something in a new light and bring out the potent or poignant threads. And I've seen that alchemy work in people in such meaningful ways. And I think it can be used in service of the third noble truth, which is where you rejoice and call out um, and speak to whatever brightness manifests when the heart is calm and peaceful. Um, you know, and, and different Rumi called something the beloved. I mean, we can't map this onto the Theravada very easily, but certainly something in the heart rejoices at times in a wholesome way, I think, in, in, in an act of metta. And so for me, no, it's not like, the you know, it, it's not mapping this onto liberation or anything like that. I'm not liberated. I just know there's something very wholesome about the happiness that comes from giving and communing with the world in that way. And I think it says a lot that the Christian monastic orders, many of them keep their monastics for many, many years, and they don't all have our meditative tools, but they do have art. So 
you know, I just, I've seen enough practitioners and monastics kind of dry up over the years without finding this internal way of playfulness and wholesome joy that I really push it. I mean, um, as something people should keep a, an eye on in their practice. Like, so yeah, I, I like to write poem, poetry um, in the mornings, a free write. Um, I like to write one poem a month at least as a gift to someone. And then there's, you know, I'm working on Lampopassano's biography uh, as much as I can. So it's those, those kind of things. It's a long answer. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a great answer. And yeah, poetry is an act of love and practicing that first thing in the morning. One of the first things in the morning is just beautiful. And Ajahn Boat writes great poetry. We don't use money as Theravada monastics. We don't use money. For me, if I have a gift to give to somebody, um, I usually like find something or, uh, you know, re-gift something. Um, whereas Ajahn Nisabo, he'll write these beautiful poems. So I, it's my wish for all of you that someday you receive a Ajahn Nisabo poem because he takes time and it, you can feel the love. So thank you, Ajahn. And uh, yeah, I, I can't actually compare to you as a gift giver, but I, I appreciate that. Oh no. <laughs> so. All right, let's, let's go to some questions. Yeah, okay. Enough, enough. Okay. That was, thank you, Ajahn. Nice conversation. Yeah, thank you, Ajahn. Uh, there's a lot more to cover for sure. Wonderful conversation. Uh, what do you say about music or other performing arts? Ajahn? So there's a sutta many of you will know uh, in which an actor comes to the Buddha and asks what happens to the actors uh, who, and the Buddha declines to answer. And then after being pressed three times, he says, look, you think and are told you'll go to the heaven of actors where everyone laughs with you, but you'll go to actually the hell of actors where everyone is laughing at you. Um, this is why we don't uh, speak about this all that often is it's a bit, a bit harsh. Um, but the idea being, I think that if a, an art form increases greed, hatred, and delusion in the audience, and certainly there are ways of approaching performing arts and music, which, which do, um, then it's not a wholesome act. That being said, um, I don't feel like I can say there aren't ways of interacting with, with music and that sort of creation that aren't very powerful um, and can't be brought into line with Dhamma. But it is a realm that the monastics tend to uh, not dive into. I mean, not only can we not put on plays, but uh, we also just can't watch them. And it's it's also true, there is something as you begin to practice more, I think, where that stuff leaves a lot more impact in the mind and it can be harder to... I remember going to a church service and they played Over the Rainbow on the ukulele. And that was like my meditation for three weeks. <laughs> so, mm. so anyways, there there are it's not a perspective that the world takes in terms of our caution around it. Um, and it's one of those questions I think as a monastic, we don't speak directly to. Um, but I also don't feel like saying that there aren't wholesome ways of interacting with, with all that. Um, Ajahn, what would you say? Uh, well, I might draw in this next question, which is somewhat related. Um, this question is, um, I think in reference to the monastic, the Buddha, um, the dwarf um, who, mm, Badia. Mm. Um, who is praised for his beautiful voice, but we're not supposed to make the chance too beautiful. Where is the line? Um, I can 
maybe we're exactly. into this. Go for um, it. Yeah, in the Vinayas or the monks, the books about the monks' discipline, um, the Buddha talked about five different drawbacks of chanting in too, a too melodious way. Um, and the drawbacks are basically personal and communal. So the personal drawbacks are that one can become infatuated with one's own voice. And the communal drawback is that uh, other people, so later generations can become infatuated with music and forget the practice. I mean, it's in a sense, it would be easier for certain people. I mean, I've never been any good at any kind of musical instrument, but um, yeah, for someone to just a monastic to um, play music all day if they wanted to avoid looking at the dukkha in their heart. And certainly people can play music in a way I would imagine, um, which could yeah support their Dhamma practice maybe in some way. Um, but yeah, for monastics, um, where is the line? I think the line in one way is through our own hearts. So am I becoming infatuated by this? Mm -hmm. Am I, is it arousing conceit that I sound good or conceit that I sound bad? Mm. And is this comparing mind coming up? So that's one line. The line is through one's own heart and watching what happens when you get too into the, the beauty of it. Um, but I can conceive it being possible. I know a lot of amazing chanters. Ajahn Jeff is a great chanter. Um, Ajahn Sudiro, our friend, is a great chanter. We have a lot of great chanters. And um, if it's not, if chanting beautifully is not giving rise to uh, conceit or comparativeness, then mm. it doesn't have to be a problem in this internal personal line. But the Buddha did also, for monastics, male and female, also talk about this communal line. So we do have to be careful that we're not, uh, quote, corrupting families. Mm. So if Ajahn Nisibo and I were to go on tour and just like, you know, chant all over the place with drums and, you know, uh, you know, graphics in the background and, you know, singing and, you know, all sorts of different keys, other monastics might not get as much support as we did because we're the, you know, fancy monks who do whatever. So um, that's on a monastic level is we also have to be careful about and protect the lineage and um, the standard that the Buddha is pointing to is that monastics are a symbol of renunciation. And um, yeah, it's not just about us and what we want to do is we're symbols for something, something else. Do you have thoughts on that, Ajahn? Yeah, and uh, that switch to Clear Mountain Tour is not the subject of the coming newsletter. Um, so, <laughs> but you know, no, I think, and the word for melodious in that, everything you said is, is, is good. And I think that word for melodious is, I don't know the exact poly, but it's relevant here because some people, um, like your chanting is very elegant, um, but it's not over the top. And there's a simplicity and an elegance to this tradition, which um, are subtle. And I think chanting in line with that can really be seen it is beautiful but it's not over the top and it, it maps onto an interesting warning where the buddha says in the future people will be enamored with the words of poets and forget the teachings that are profound and deep and it is interesting to come across our chants or the suttas uh, and sometimes we're so uh flushed with kind of the more 
colorful language of, of Rumi or Mary Oliver, who are, you know, beautiful poets, but you can overlook this elegant simplicity at the heart of Theravada and of the Buddhist teachings. And there are beautiful analogies in the Buddhist discourses, but much of it's this simple elegance. And I just think that's a, a very refined aesthetic that can take a while to get to. So in line with that, um, at the same time, we do have a chant or two in the Theravada tradition, which is a bit colorful. So I want to acknowledge that. Ajahn, uh, Matt, are there really creatives and non-creatives? Should I answer that because I was the one who used the term? Yeah, please, please. Um, good point, Matt. I think there are there's a creative element in in everyone. I have found very useful a um, archetypal scheme for the masculine, uh, where there's four types pointed out: the king, warrior, magician, lover, and I do find that people sometimes lean towards one or the other. The lover archetype, its prime directive is to connect, and a lot of creatives are that. Um, I feel like I lean that way. Um, not literally, just metaphorically connection and uh, I think therefore artistic expression. Um, the shadow of the lover is the addict. Um, but there's this other archetype of the magician and they love to play with knowledge. And I do feel like I know some characters who what really brightens their heart uh, is is kind of playing with knowledge and concepts and it's it is creative but perhaps creative in a different sense so that's what i was getting at there but i think it's a very good point not to overly oversimplify or over categorize ajin did you have any more on that or should we ask brianna's question no nope, let's do brianna's expression can lead one into complicated mental and emotional spaces and sometimes staying with it is essential to tap into deeper truths or stories. How does Sila work within the world of creativity? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I mean, Sila as habit or Sila as, um, yeah, the aspect of Sila, which involves restraint, samvara. I mean, <laughs> you have different types of creativity, different types of art, but uh, classically, um, you know, the, the beauty of, um, Leonardo's paintings or Michelangelo's, these Renaissance paintings, or the, the beauty of Shakespeare, um, is that these fit into forms. There's a lot of discipline. So the Sila, Sila as discipline. Um, yeah, I mean, you, uh, <laughs> having constraints and then playing, be able to play within the constraints are really what makes uh, for a lot of the beauty uh, in these different in these different media, and um, yeah, honestly, I, I think there's a living beauty, like a living artwork. You see some of these, like Ajahn. Um, let's see, uh, yeah, the the abbot of Wat Nong Papong. You know, he's not at all. Um, yeah, he, he he's not a writer. He's not an editor. Um, I don't know how much of a reader he is, but he's just a beautiful person. The sila, the constraints, the restraint, the discipline that he's put onto his life. He is the artwork that he's created over these decades and decades and decades. Um, so yeah, and you, you see that a lot. I mean, um, so yeah, and I think both with art and with life, if you take away those guardrails, if you take away the, the clear lines, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Jackson Pollock's 
paintings, you know, the splatter artwork. Apparently people say that there are patterns there and that he obviously could before he was doing the, the paint splatters. He, um, yeah, was classically trained, I believe. So he could do these things, but it's his intentional choice to go outside the lines, which um, is beautiful in the eyes of some people. But yeah, a lot of modern artists where all of the guardrails are taken down and it's almost a flaunting of convention, a flaunting of sila. Um, and a dis deliberate disregard and almost spitting, like literal spitting sometimes, crapping on um, that which is sacred, that which is um, yeah, a discipline. I mean, maybe there's some, some kind of message there that um, you can find beauty in anything. Um, and, but yeah, um, it's also messy. I don't know which modern art museums you've been going to, Ajahn, but... Uh... <laughs> no, I agree with the general sentiments, just the, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, not, there's not so much spitting, but it, it does happen. In, no, uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, I think what you pointed to is really, um, important just with the place that, uh, the monastic enterprise occupies in the American psyche right now, not that it occupies much of a space for most people, but certainly Clear Mountain is, um, we didn't expect the younger generation to be as interested in the form and they were. And for me, that speaks to what you're saying. Like there is this conceit in a lot of contemporary culture of get rid of all the guardrails and something in us, I think really intuits that that's not the way to true freedom. And like you said, with Longpur Liam uh, at Wapapong, the teachers I've seen who seem the most free are unbelievably meticulous about the moment to moment. Um, so any other thoughts, Ajahn? I know we are coming to the end of our time. Yeah, we're pretty much to the end of our time, um, but maybe we could talk about this again. I mean, I only got to one of my like 12 plus questions for you. So um, but yeah, Ajahn Nisibo has just put the link for our Zoom channel in the chat. So that's what we do now, is we transition over to Zoom so people who are inclined can um, have a voice. Uh, here it's just Tachan Nisbo and I, um, but if you go to Zoom, we're there for another 45 minutes, and uh, it's beautiful. Um, the basically living um, art that kind of the, the kind of community dynamic um, really does produce something special and unexpected every, every Wednesday, and um, themes will emerge and that's quite beautiful. So everyone is invited. You can just go to that link. And Ajahn Nisibo will be going on retreat starting soon. Sunday? This, yes, Sunday. Yeah, for three months. But I'll still be doing all these regular things, just nothing extra and stepping back from uh, internet as much as possible. So so going on alms round, going to the Saturday gatherings. But, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. Well, Ajahn, everyone else, thank you very much. And we'll hopefully see some or most of you or some of you over on Zoom. <laughs> I think we both pressed.